Well, I brought with me this morning a very instructive list. It's entitled, Everything I Really Needed to Know I Learned from Noah's Ark. Here it is, right here. Here are the lessons we learned. Remember, we're all in the same boat. That's a good lesson you learned from Noah. How about this one? Two heads are better than one. If you have to start over, do it with a friend by your side. That's a good lesson to learn. The woodpeckers inside are a greater threat than the storm outside. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Good lesson. How about this one? Stay fit. When you're 600, you may get asked to do something really big. Don't listen to critics. Just get on with the job that needs to be done. For safety's sake, travel in pairs. You learn that from Noah's. Speed isn't always an advantage. Snails and cheetahs were on the ark. I like this one. Remember, the ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by professionals. <laughs> Keep that in mind. How about this one? No matter the storm, if you're with God, there's always a rainbow ahead. And then there's one more. Don't miss the boat. That's a good lesson to learn. Well, obviously, there's a lot that we can learn from the story of Noah. And Noah is the focus of today's episode in our series, Connecting the Dots, Putting the Bible Together. We've been talking about seven turning points in God's dealings with mankind and their accompanying covenants. Remember, a covenant is an agreement between two people. It sets out the terms of the relationship. And the Bible is a series of covenants that God made with certain men at certain times in response to certain events. These covenants govern how God deals with people, even today. In week one, we discussed God's initial covenant with mankind in the Garden of Eden, the Edenic Covenant was the arrangement that God made with the man and the woman before they ever took a bite of that forbidden fruit. Week 2 focused on the covenant that God made after mankind's original sin. The Adamic covenant impacted the man and the woman at the very core of their being. It threw a wrench in the gears of all of life. Work and family was never the same. Life became much more difficult. And this week we tackle the Noahic Covenant. For even today, after it rains, we're still reminded that God's agreement with Noah is in effect, even now. Well, in 2007, a technician working for the state of Alaska, he was performing some routine maintenance on a computer hard drive. Mistakenly, though, he formatted not only the drive itself, but the backup. Data disappeared faster than you could say, oops. With one click of the enter key, nine months of entries, 800,000 electronically scanned images just disappeared, gone, poof, oops. The only remaining backups were 300 boxes of written records. It took over 70 employees working non-stop to re-enter the lost data, one keystroke, 
A single oops cost the state of Alaska over $200,000. And one sin cost Adam and Eve and their descendants far more. You see, the first couple, they wanted to be like God, but apart from God. They lusted for autonomy. It wasn't that they didn't like God or that they didn't want to be with Him. They just didn't want to be His underling. They wanted to captain their own ship. And when Satan tempted them with the offer, they took the bait. With one bite, a single oops, they lost everything. All of life was affected. Mother Nature went bonkers. God's orderly creation was subjected to randomness. Today, droughts cause famine. And tsunamis wipe out coastlines. And snowstorms shut down cities. All because Adam did an oops. Man's relationships with nature and work and family and most importantly God were damaged by a costly error. But that's when God instituted a covenant. And this is the reoccurring storyline in the drama of mankind. The sin and rebellion that we cause, our attitude against God, prompts God's love in return. It's amazing. God is relentless. We sin and rebel against Him, but God refuses to give up on mankind. He speeds to our rescue time and time again with a covenant. God reestablishes terms under which He and man can renew their relationship. You know, it's interesting. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned and poisoned their descendants, God came to them with a covenant. He responded with the promise of a Savior. Genesis 3 verse 15 is called the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. God says to the serpent there in the Garden of Eden, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As we talked about last time, the seed of the woman is a Hebrew idiom for Jesus' virgin birth. Here God predicts that Jesus will ultimately triumph over Satan. Remember the war that rages between God and Satan. God created the angels to be guardians or servants to men. Though we were created a little lower in stature than the angels, we were destined by God to rise above them in glory. Satan couldn't stand the thought of serving a creature that came from a clump of dust. And so he tried to stop creation. When he failed, he tried to spoil it by tempting Adam and Eve. And throughout history, Satan continues his assault. He wants to keep humanity in darkness. He carries an enmity or a hostility in his chest toward mankind. Ultimately, Genesis 3 verse 15, the first gospel foreshadows the cross. You know, in any war, blows eventually get exchanged. Satan will inflict Jesus with a heel bruise, with a minor wound that happened on the cross. But in return, Jesus leveled a crippling blow. He crushed the serpent's head. Jesus got the knockout punch. He axed the authority of Satan on the cross. But here's what's amazing. God's promise of a Savior arrives on the very eve of Satan's first victory. Satan is flush with his first victory. 
The tempter has deceived Eve and led Adam astray. And God takes it all in stride. Oh, he's not pleased, but he doesn't panic. There's no hand-wringing or nervous pacing in heaven. God is always in the know and always in control. He had a covenant for just this situation. Genesis 3 even concedes that this won't be Satan's last hurrah. Before his crushing comes, he'll inflict some minor injuries. He'll bruise a heel or two. Here's the point. God expected the fall of man and the suffering of Jesus and the damage done by sin and Satan. Revelation 13 verse 8 proves as much. It calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Your sin, what's more, your salvation was known by God before the first people were even created. Like a parent teaching a baby to walk, God knew that there would be some spills along the way. That falls are part of the process. Here's where I'm going this morning. Apparently, God's master plan assumes that sin will invade His perfect world and contaminate His creation. God isn't caught off guard by these things. Evidently, God wanted us to experience a world gone haywire. He's never responsible for our sin, but He takes advantage of it, and He's using it to accomplish His purposes. You see, God's intention was never to simply restore man to what sin had lost. Sitting naked under a tree munching on fruit was never our ultimate destiny. I mean, God's goal was not to recreate man's innocence in the garden. In God's estimation, a redeemed man is superior to an innocent man. You see, the innocent Adam, he had no knowledge of sin, but neither did he know the joy of God's forgiveness or reconciliation or God's righteousness. He had never experienced this. He was just a blank slate. Not a negative, but certainly not a positive either. Morally and spiritually, Adam was a zero. And God's goal is not to spend eternity with zeros. You see, here's today's big idea. We gain more in Christ than we lose in Adam. That's glorious. In Christ, we have this new nature God gives us. Jesus calls us friends. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're called God's children, His beloved, heirs to His glory. None of this was ascribed to an innocent Adam. Realize a right standing with God in Christ Jesus is greater to the innocence of Adam. The salvation of Christ is superior to the perfection of Adam. Here's what I think. I think that God prefers hanging out with people who've tasted of His grace over folks who've never known His grace and have known nothing but innocence. I'm not excusing our sin. I'm not trying to turn evil into good. But our struggle with sin and the joy that comes from Christ's salvation, it creates a gratitude and a humility that pleases God. It seems that love for God and praise to God always flows pure from a redeemed heart. Sadly, one of the chief traits of human beings is our tendency toward boredom. Anything, no matter how good, 
loses its luster over time. We get bored. We don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before they tired of God's menu. But boredom and curiosity led to that massive oops. But now imagine a perfect heaven for you. How long do you think it would take you before you got bored if you had no comparisons? Could it be the temporary pain we're experiencing in this marred world is necessary preparation for the eternity God has in store? Hey, trust me, we'll appreciate God's government far more having experienced what happens when man is in charge. God knew a brief time under fallen conditions would maximize our eternal enjoyment. Here's how we could say it. Our fallen world is not the best possible world to live in. Not hardly. I mean, it's full of heartache and headache and heartbreak. Through Christ, God will one day redeem or win back this world from sin's curse. But God in His wisdom sees that this fallen world, He he sees this fallen world not as the best possible world, but as the best possible way to the best possible world. In other words, living in a scarred world, a sin-scarred world, is what's preparing us now for glory. In God's estimation, a world that has known sin and its consequences, yet been redeemed from it, is better than a world of innocence. This is why from the very outset, God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. A promise to redeem us. The seed of the woman would be our Savior. And that's why when Eve births the first child born to human parents, she names him Cain. It means, I have him. She thought she'd gotten the promise. She's quoted in Genesis 4 verse 1, I have acquired a man from the Lord. One translation renders it, I have gotten a man, even Jehovah. Eve assumes that her son is God's promised Savior. And this is understandable. Certainly she was expectant. I mean, she's living now outside the garden. She's just experienced the labor pains that God warned her about. She's longing to be redeemed from the pain all around her. She hopes it came is her answer. Here's an old riddle. What were Adam and Eve doing after God expelled them from the garden? And the answer? They were raising Cain. That's what they were doing. And that's all it took to shatter Eve's illusion. I mean, as soon as she got her baby home from the hospital, she realized that like all babies, he was self-willed. Cain threw temper tantrums and told lies and got jealous and and pouted when he didn't get his way. I mean, Cain was born as self-centered as Adam and Eve had become. Cain wasn't a savior, he was a brat. Cain was a pain. And slowly Eve became painfully aware of the implications of her sin, not only for her and Adam, but for the whole human race. She ends up naming her second son Abel, which means vanity. Didn't take long for Eve to despair. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. And this is our first inclination when we sin. We try to turn over a new leaf. We rely 
on self-improvement. We, we put our trust in our own efforts to cover our sin. But God swapped their fig leaves with animal skins. He insisted on a sacrifice. And apparently, God taught that lesson to Adam and his family. Thus, when the brothers came to worship, they knew that the wages of sin was death. God's covenant required a blood offering. Abel acknowledged his need by coming with a lamb from his flock. He came on God's terms. But Cain, you see, was a farmer. He was proud of his accomplishments. He offered the fruits of his harvest, yet his horn of plenty proved not enough. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but rejected Cain's self-righteousness. And this is still the terms of God's covenant with man. Hey, do-it-yourself might work with home improvements, but it won't make a person right with God. It won't, be, it won't bring you into the blessing of God. We have to humble ourselves and come with a lamb. All our good intentions never equal faith in Jesus. Victory comes when we trust in the Lamb of God. Rather than humble himself and trust in another, Cain's pride took over. He got angry. He became jealous of Abel and murdered his brother. Cain ended up a murderer, not a savior. Imagine the regret Eve felt after Cain's crime and her family's loss. What had she done? Her oops in the garden had proved costly indeed. And from the first family, the story of mankind, it goes from bad to worse. The early chapters of Genesis depict Adam's immediate descendants as technologically advanced, but morally corrupt and spiritually deviant. The antediluvian world, that world that existed before the deluge or the flood, it boasted against God. They lived in open immorality and worshipped the occult. Apparently, the antediluvians, they crossed boundaries that God never intended. They sold themselves completely to sin and Satan. The depth of their sin became irreparable. Finally, in Genesis 6, verse 16, God responds, The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. What a sad statement. Yet notice that word grieve. God grieved. Grieve is a love word. You can be angry or disappointed with, without loving someone, but you can't grieve without loving them. Grieve is a love word. You only grieve when love gets frustrated. God still loved mankind. And in order to preserve the human race, He wiped out the antediluvian corruption and He started over with one man and his family. Enter Noah. As we said, everything I really needed to know in life, I learned from Noah. And the biggest lesson we glean is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. I mean, while the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we're told Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace. He didn't try Cain's approach and come to God on his own merit. No, he relied on God's mercies. And because of Noah's faith, God chose to enter into a covenant with him. God told Noah to build a big boat, a boat of gopher wood. Prepare for at least two of every animal species. Stock up on Dramamine, get a tin can for the termites, and hold off on that fly swatter. Well, maybe not all of that. I doubt if he had any Dramamine. 
but he did build a boat. Noah and his family, they were obedient. And when the day came to enter the ark, guess who shut the door behind them? Genesis 7 verse 16 tells us, the Lord shut him in. Again, God was in charge. He sealed that door up tight with love. And then it rained and rained and rained for 40 days and for 40 nights. Technically, underground aquifers spewed water upwards while a collapsing bank of clouds caused water to fall downwards. It was a true deluge. And it didn't matter how talented a swimmer you were. You've got to understand this. It didn't matter how hard you trained. Did you know every Olympian drowned in the water? Even if Michael Phelps had been in the water, he still would have gone under as well. I mean, the only people to survive the floodwaters were those who trusted in God's salvation and got on board with His plan. This is what covenants are about. They're about us getting on board with God's plan. Well, when Noah exited the ark, he stepped out into a very, very different world. 2 Peter 3 verse 6 comments, The world that then existed perished. I mean, it was a different world. Before the flood, the topography was flat and the climate was mild and the conditions were safe. But when man walked out of the ark, he was now facing a rugged terrain and brutal weather and dangerous predators. You know, scientists and Bible scholars alike, they believe that before the flood, the earth was shrouded in a vapor canopy that created sort of a greenhouse effect. A tropical climate and lush vegetation covered the globe. This cloud cover may have even filtered out harmful solar rays that accelerate the aging process. Now this is why in the early chapters of Genesis, it speaks of people living to be 900 years old. I mean, after the flood, these lifespans dropped down to current ages. Certainly, when Noah stepped off the ark, he walked out into a very different place that he had known before. He walked out to face a brave new world. And chapter 8, verse 20 of Genesis records Noah's first act on dry ground. You've got to love it. We're told, Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings. People assume that two of each animal boarded the ark, but Noah actually took seven each of the animals used as sacrifices. He knew that God's covenants with man always required a sacrifice. And I'm sure that God's response to his sacrifice was a welcome relief. God promised to never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Mankind's heart was still wicked. From time to time and from place to place, judgment would be needed, but it would never again come in the form of a global flood. Well, finally, we get to our text this morning, Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God makes a covenant with Noah, especially suited now for this post-flood world. We begin, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah had my three sons. They all had a wife. And it's now up to these eight people to repopulate the planet. Talk about pressure. My, oh my. And I know how this went down. 
I mean, the guys got real excited. The wives weren't quite so sure. It's interesting. Take population trends over the last century and extrapolate them back 4,500 years and you end up with a world population of eight people. Your great-grandpa was either Shem, Ham, or Japheth, one of Noah's sons. Now notice verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things even as the green herbs. Now this is a strategic covenant. This should excite you about the Noahic covenant, especially with the Super Bowl coming up tonight. This is the covenant where God sanctions the enjoyment of bacon and burgers and steak and shrimp and chicken wings and bratswurst and sausage pizza and all the good things we enjoy at our Super Bowl parties. I mean, prior to the flood, humans were vegetarians. But afterwards, God adds meat to man's diet. You need to realize, there's nothing Christian about vegetarian. Now, if you're a vegetarian, that's fine. You know, God bless you, that's more meat for me. (laughs) But there's nothing Christian about being vegetarian. Just know that. The God of the Bible blesses Big Macs and barbecue pork, man. He added meat to man's diet. Evidently, post-flood conditions required an extra source of protein. And now that animals become a food source for man, God instills within the animal kingdom a fear of humans. Notice verse 2. It calls it a fear or a dread. This was God's way of sort of evening up the score. Protecting the animals. I mean, imagine a hunter coaxing little Bambi out of the woods with a few sugar cubes and then getting him out in the open and then opening fire on him, you know. Bam! That's not fair. God had to place hostility between the animals and the humans or it would have given an unfair advantage to the meat-hungry humans. Of course, Noah looked at this as an unfair advantage for the animals. This created a radical new world for Noah and his descendants. On board the ark, gators and grizzlies had literally eaten out of his hand. But from now on, they'll need to keep their hand away from the jaws of such animals. Or else. You see, overnight, all of Noah's furry friends turned into natural predators. Man is now forced to hunt or be hunted. You see, this was a scary new world for Noah, living in this fallen world. After the flood, every time the bushes rustled, he wondered if he was being stalked. Danger now loomed everywhere. Verse 5 anticipates this hostility between man and animal. He says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. Now, All of life comes from God. And all of life is a gift from God. But in contrast to our modern values, 
the values of our modern culture today, which have really gone astray. We've really lost our bearings. But in contrast to our modern world, all of life is not created equal. You need to know that. Not in the eyes of God. It all comes from God, but it's not all equal. For man alone is made in God's image. Not plants, not animals. Now, I'm not advocating the cruelty to either, but the life of a dog or the life of an old oak tree isn't on the same level as human life and shouldn't get the same protections. If I cut down an old oak tree for firewood to warm my family, that's great. My family trumps the life of that oak tree. Human life comes first. If a dog bites a man, it's the dog that needs to get put down, not the man. Whereas if a man shoots a dog for no reason, you can fine him, maybe make him spend the night in jail, but you don't put him down. I mean, we got to explain this today. Our world's gone nuts. According to God's covenant with Noah, human life is superior to other forms of life, to animal life and to plant life. Humans get greater protection. Now God continues, From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Here God institutes capital punishment. He orders the death penalty. And notice it has nothing to do with deterrence. You know, people often track whether... The death penalty deters murderers and serial killers. But that's not the issue here in Genesis. By the way, it does deter the guy who gets the needle. It, it does deter him. He won't do it again. But deterrence really is a mute point. The motive behind the death penalty isn't to cut crime. It's to glorify God. Notice humans are made in God's image. Thus murder is an attack on God. That's the reason it's deserving of death. Now, the Noahic covenant mandates capital punishment and by inference institutes the idea of human government to carry it out. You want to know where human government was established? It happened right here at the Noahic covenant, Genesis chapter 9. Up until Noah, there was no such thing as human government. All government had come from God. But here God establishes the police. He sets up human government. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will tell His followers to turn the other cheek. But He's speaking in regards to personal interactions. His instructions to believers don't alter the responsibility that God gave to human government in Genesis chapter 9. God invented three institutions. Marriage, church, and government. Now God goes on in the next few verses to clarify that His covenant with Noah isn't just with Noah, but it's with His descendants and all living creatures. He'll never destroy the earth with water again. And He even offers a sign. In verse 13, God tells us, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, of course, a rainbow is an optical phenomenon where the droplets of water reflect the light and it creates a prism effect. The water reveals the colors of the spectrum. There were probably rainbows before the flood, perhaps in the garden mist. 
Maybe when Adam washed his car after he'd been driven from the Garden of Eden. Maybe he saw the rainbow, you know, in the, in the soap bubbles or something. I don't know. But since the flood was the first time that it had actually rained on the earth, no human prior to Noah had ever seen a rainbow hanging in the clouds. And understand what God was saying with this rainbow. He was literally hanging up his bow where everyone could see. The Hebrew word translated rainbow refers to a bow and arrow, instruments of war. When God hung up his bow, he was hanging up his intent to destroy mankind. Now here's the gist of the Noahic covenant. After the flood, every time Noah felt droplets of rain on his shoulder, you got to understand what that did to him. Oh no, is it happening again? Every time he heard a thunderclap in the distance, it created a crisis of faith in his heart. Every time Noah heard noises in the dark or the bushes rustle or an animal howl, the question he faced was this, will I trust God in this fallen world? Will I still depend on God's grace or will I rely on myself? Will I go outside of God's protection? You see, God promises grace. He hung up His bow to prove it. God's agenda from now to the end of the age is salvation, not condemnation. You need to realize that the next time you see a rainbow. That's what God's saying to you. The question for us, though, is do we trust Him? Do we have faith enough to enter a covenant relationship with God even in the midst of this fallen world. Now the answer for the people around Noah were no. They chose to disobey God. They they didn't choose faith. They chose unbelief. In fact, in Genesis 9 verse 1, God told Noah's descendants to multiply and to scatter, or literally, to fill the earth. But that's not what they did. That was not their first impulse. Again, the people disobeyed God. Rather than spread out, they huddled up for protection. You see, the earth was no longer a safe place. It was now foreign and frightening. The various tribes, they gathered in Iraq, in the plain of Shinar. They joined together as one people under one government with one ruler named Nimrod. By the way, the name Nimrod means to rebel, and that's what this man did. Nimrod led a revolt against God. You see, the Lord had hung his bow in the clouds and sought peace with mankind. But Nimrod, we're told, became the mighty hunter before the Lord. One interpretation reads, a mighty hunter against the Lord. The idea being that Nimrod tried to draw people away from God and after himself. Tradition says that Nimrod was a skilled archer. He was known for his bow. You see, God had deliberately hung up his bow, but Nimrod took up his bow. Nimrod was a hunter, and he had this uncanny ability with animals. He was first to domesticate horses, tradition tells us. He brought dangerous beasts under his sway. Among men, not accustomed to this new threat from the animal kingdom, Nimrod became a very powerful and very impressive person. 
You see, Nimrod played on men's fears. In the wake of the new threats posed by this post-flood world, he manipulated men into disobeying God and following him. People looked to Nimrod for protection. He made these appealing promises. Nimrod was held as a savior. We could call him the first antichrist. And you should know, this is still Satan's strategy. He still plays on our fears in a fallen world. He comes to us and he says, oh, you can't trust God. There's too much danger out there. You know, if God really could protect you, why has he allowed these things to happen in your life? He surrounds us by fear and he manipulates us and he draws us after himself through fear. This is still Satan's strategy. According to Genesis chapter 11, Nimrod builds a tower to the heavens. But it's not for God's glory. We're told it was to make a name for himself. We're told in verse 3 of chapter 11, they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And this is very important. This word asphalt, ancient asphalt. It was a waterproofing material. When the mother of Moses made the little basket and put him in the water. It says she covered it with pitch or with asphalt. Same word. She made it waterproof. It's a waterproofing material. So here's what Nimrod does. He constructs a huge waterproof skyscraper in the middle of the desert. Now let me ask, why would anyone in their right mind build a watertight tower in an arid place in the middle of the desert? Think about it. There's only one reason. Nimrod didn't trust God and his rainbow. Nimrod was resentful. He didn't believe that a redeemed man was better than an innocent man. He didn't trust in God's covenant. He knew best. And so he, he said, he spread the lie. You can't trust God. You can't have faith in God. Played on men's fears to get them to follow Him. And you know what? You know some Nimrods. I know some Nimrods. There's still people in this world taking shots at God. Blaming God. Accusing God. Rather than faith, they blame their problems on God. In essence, Nimrod calls God a liar. Oh, He will be the Savior who will deliver humanity from that cruel tyrant who flooded the earth with water. Nimrod makes God out to be the bad guy and him out to be the good guy. The Jewish Talmud says of Nimrod, he wanted to wage war against God. Here's another battle in that ongoing war. But Nimrod's war didn't last long. Genesis 11 describes how God came down to Babel and broke up his party. He confused the original language. And the breakdown in communication caused separation among men. It drove men apart. And it scattered the people as God had intended in the first place. And once again, God responded with a covenant. He always does. But here's the twist. No longer will God try to reach mankind as a whole. He'll choose a single family from 
mankind, from the mass of humanity, and He'll bring salvation through that single family. You see, in Genesis chapter 11, Satan orchestrates a worldwide rebellion by choosing a man, Nimrod, and a place, Babel, and a means, fear. But now in Genesis 12, God will counter that with a work of redemption. He establishes a fresh covenant, and God chooses a man. His name is Abraham. And a place, the land of Canaan, and a means known as faith. You see, in a real sense, your Bible is divided into two sections. And I'm not talking Old Testament and New Testament. You know, a better dividing line is between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. I mean, from Genesis 1 through Genesis 11, God tries to establish a covenant with this Adams family. And that's a tough lot, those Adamses. Good grief, they're stubborn. They like to rebel. God tries to establish a covenant with all mankind. But again, they stiffen their necks. But now, from here until the end of your Bible, God is going to work primarily through one family to redeem the world, the family of Abraham. Next week, we're going to tackle the granddaddy of all God's covenants, the covenant from which the rest of them stem, the Abrahamic covenant. But the question for us today is, will we trust in God's grace? Will we live by faith in a fearful, scary place? Hey, God hung up His bow. Will you hang up yours?